So Joshua 6, certainly one of the most polarising parts of the um, Bible, <clears throat> because on the one hand, uh, this is a Sunday school favourite. You know, this is up there with David and Goliath and uh, Daniel in the lion's den, because it's so exciting and dramatic. You know, there's this the marching around and then the big shout and the wall collapsing. It's, it's very uh, exciting. And so, of course, every Sunday school program has to include this. Uh, there's even a song about it, as we saw last week, although it's not particularly accurate. Uh, but very popular story. However, at the heart of this account are some details that many struggle with. Uh, many struggle with in a big way, actually. And uh, it's, as a result, this is one of the most hated and most rejected parts of the Bible. Uh, you know, in fact, maybe some of you even cringed when I read verse uh, 21. You know, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. It's, it's very confronting when you stop and think about what is actually taking place uh, in the um, Battle of Jericho. Uh, and so it's no surprise that this passage uh, is routinely used by atheists to try to not only discredit the Bible, but also to try to discredit God himself. Uh, terms like moral monster are thrown around a lot uh, when this is brought up. And uh, this, this particular uh, case, so Jer Jericho, it's, it's often compared to some of the worst genocides in uh, modern history. Uh, and you know, even Christians can be deeply troubled um, by not just the Battle of Jericho, but by the conquest in general. You know, the Israelites going into the Promised Land, killing everyone and taking the land. You know, many struggle with that, uh, ha have real trouble thinking, hang on a minute, how could God command something like that? Uh, it's something that troubles many people. And uh, one example of that, um, you know, people try to get around it by saying, well, you know, Jesus taught something very different, you know, even contradicting this. And so therefore that shows that what was written in the Old Testament was more of a primitive view of God and therefore, we can kind of leave this in the past and, and you know, move on. Uh, yeah, and so I've certainly come across that myself um, in different places. So what do we do then? Here, here's this, you know, Joshua in the Battle of Jericho, exciting. Uh, yikes, they kill everyone. What do we do with this? And uh, the most important thing is to go, hang on, this is the Word of God. So rather than sitting in judgment on it, which I think is what tends to happen, uh, what we need to do is actually let the Bible speak for itself. I mean, what, what does this passage teach us about the conquest? Uh, what does the rest of the Old Testament teach us about uh, why God commanded the Israelites to go in and, and take the Promised Land? Uh, we need to look at what the Scripture teaches and then uh, understand it before we rush to make uh, judgments on it. And so we'll see in this passage tonight, there are three things that we learn about the destruction of Jericho. Uh, three things. And the first one, I'm going to call a determined destruction. There's a determined destruction here. And that's in verses 6 to 14. 
Uh, here we've got the account, Joshua, um, he, he gets the Israelite army together, passes on the instructions, gets them into action. And so uh, the point though of verses 6 to 14 is that God is the one who is determined to destroy Jericho. Okay, the way that it's described, the way the action is carried out, it's all to convey that God is the one who is behind this. God is the one determined to destroy them. And you can see that in, you know, the people, they march around the city one day, go to bed. Uh, they march around the city the next day and go to bed. And they do that for six days, but then, then on the seventh day, they have to march around seven times, which indicates it's not the biggest city. It's not the size of Melbourne. <laughs> you couldn't do that in, in a day, seven times. Um, but they march around and on the seventh day, they have to shout, and as soon as they shout, the walls will come down. And so what brought the walls down? It wasn't the noise. <laughs> it was God who did it. Uh, clearly, God is the one who is behind this. Uh, he's the one fighting for the Israelites. And that's also brought out by the fact of all these references to the Ark of the Lord. Did you notice just in verses um, 6 to 14, you've got eight references to the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, which was that box that the priests um, were able to carry around. And uh, that, rep that Ark represented God's presence, which shows us that when, when the Canaanites, or when the, the Jericho people, looked down from the wall at the army marching around, they would see, hey, what's that, what's that box that seems to be the focus? And it's even brought out by the way that everyone's structured. Did you notice that before the Ark of the Covenant, you've got those priests going with trumpets and they're blowing them constantly, all of the noises around this Ark. And not only that, but um, Joshua says in verse 10, uh, do not give a war cry. He says to the army, they're all at the back. He says, do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until I tell you to shout. And so all of the noise of this march, it's all happening around the ark. That's where the focus is. And why is that? That's because that's where the main player is. That's where the warrior is. It's the Lord. Uh, this, this is not Israel's fight. This is God's fight. And so that forces us to ask the question then, what was God's beef with Jericho? Why was he determined... Uh, to destroy them, to determine to wipe them out? That's the question we need to ask. And to answer that, we need to then go back and look, well, what does the Old Testament tell us about why this happened? And to do that, there's actually three very important Old Testament passages that if you, you have a good look at them, uh, then we understand the context for why uh, the Jericho needed to be destroyed. And I actually found uh, the commentator Dale Ralph Davies, if you've ever come across Dale Ralph Davies on the Old Testament as a commentator, he's just fantastic. So I found him very helpful and, and he did point out these three passages in his commentary. So the first one that we need to look at is Genesis 15. Um, in Genesis 15, this is where God makes this covenant with Abraham and as part of that covenant, he promises Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan. And uh, he, he, God says to Abraham that first your descendants are going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then, verse 16, 
says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, that is the promised land, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet, yet reached its full measure. Now, Amorites, Canaanites, they're interchangeable terms. Amorites is like a blanket term for the people who live um, in Canaan. And uh, we see here that the reason uh, God was, was um, giving the land to the Israelites is because of the Amorites' wickedness, that God has decided that they need to be judged, that they need to be wiped out. And, uh, you know, apparently that they were particularly wicked. It almost reminds us of something that happened much earlier in the Bible, Genesis 6, you know, where the whole earth was wicked and aroused God's judgment and the whole earth uh, experienced that worldwide flood. And so here we see God was against the Amorites and uh, so he, he was set uh, to judge them. And once they were judged, that would mean that their land was then empty, which means he could give it to uh, someone else, uh, the Israelites in this case. But what is interesting about that is notice the emphasis here is on God delaying. See, he's holding back judgment until, for 400 years, until it reaches its full measure. Now, why would God ever delay judgment? Why does God ever delay a judgment? There's only one reason. It's so that people can repent. And uh, so here we see that though the Canaanites were so wicked that they had aroused God's judgment, he was patient. He patiently waited uh, for the Canaanites. So that's the first thing we see. The second passage is in Leviticus 18. And this is where we need to ask, well, what was so bad about the Canaanites? Why was it that the Canaanites aroused God's judgment? Why was he determined to destroy them? And uh, we get a taste of, of um, what that nation was like uh, in Leviticus 18, because uh, I don't know if you remember Leviticus 18. It's a really uh, full-on passage because, uh, you know, God says to the Israelites, uh, you must not do, verse 3, you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, do not follow their practices. And then he lists the practices that go on in Canaan. And it's every form of sexual um, perversion that you could imagine. And uh, then the list ends with, um, you must not sacrifice your children in the fire. You know, all of these uh, perversions. Uh, and then the list concludes by God saying in verse 24, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. And so when you read that, you realise that the Canaanites were a particularly wicked nation. And, you know, it's, it's not a case of, oh, those poor innocent people being driven out of their land like that. There's no such thing as innocent people there. And from beginning to end, you know, the Bible tells us that the God who made us and the God who made all things that we are accountable to him, that we are accountable for the way that we live. So the Canaanites were accountable to God and they had defied him in every way. 
And so God, God's patience eventually would run out and his judgment would fall. And so as a result, the Canaanites uh, really got exactly what their sins deserve. You know, the wages of sin is death. And that's what they received. They got, they got justice. They got what their sins deserved. And, uh, and that's why it's, it's helpful to remember this because often the accusation uh, with uh, the book of Joshua in particular is, uh, you know, that God was wrong to command uh, the destruction of these innocent people. You might have heard that. Uh, you know, God was wrong to, to, to drive out these, these innocent poor Canaanites. There's no innocence. Okay, and, and so what that accusation shows us, though, is that people don't understand the holiness of God. They don't understand the justice of God, that God is right to punish sin. You know, they don't understand uh, the sovereignty of God, for that matter, that, that God is over all things, that he, he, he owns all and therefore all owe allegiance to him. Okay, so... That's two passages. Now, here's the third piece of the puzzle that helps us understand what's going on with Jericho, and that is Deuteronomy 9. Uh, because in Deuteronomy 9, this is where God explains to the Israelites that he is going to use them as the instruments of um, his judgment on Canaan. Now, remember, in the, in the flood, what was the instrument that God used to judge the whole earth? It was water. Okay, well, in the, um, the conquest, the instrument that God used was the Israelites. And uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, it's actually, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verses 4 to 6, I forgot to put the other ones there, but, um, but God makes it absolutely clear to the Israelites. He says, I'm going to use you as the instruments to judge the Canaanites. But do not for one second think that's because you're better. <laughs> Don't for a second think that I'm using you because you're the good people and they're the bad people. Uh, twice God says um, what he says here. He says, it's not because of your righteousness and your, or your integrity that you're going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. Uh, God goes on to say in verse 6 uh, of that chapter, uh, that um, the Israelites themselves are stiff-necked people. That's actually verse 5. I'm sorry about that. Um, but yeah, the Israelites, he says, you are stiff-necked people. And so what, what we actually see is that God is going to use stiff-necked people as the instruments of judgment on a wicked people. And uh, what we see there is the only reason the Israelites weren't judged is because God had mercy on them and he provided a way to punish their sin without punishing them. They got mercy, but the Canaanites got justice and that was at the, by the instrument of the Israelite army. And God actually goes on later on in Deuteronomy to warn the Israelites, if you turn away from me and follow the practices of Canaan, then you can expect exactly the same thing to happen as what happened in Canaan. And uh, if we follow the history of the Israelites, uh, you know, you get to the kings and later on, and eventually, you know, what do Israel do? They do ignore God. They don't listen to his word. They turn away. And what happens? 
God uses the Assyrians as the instruments of his judgment on Israel. And he used the, the Babylonians as the instruments of his judgment on Judah. And uh, remember Habakkuk, you know, he, he's like, what is going on? Remember the book of Habakkuk? That's the issue. How can God use the Babylonians to punish Israel? But as, as we can see, God uses instruments uh, to judge. And uh, in this case, with the, the conquest in Canaan, he uses the Israelites. And so with this Old Testament background in mind, you know, the wickedness of Canaan, the, the instrument that God uses with the Israelites, we can now see that when you get to Joshua at Jericho, uh, and, and we can see God leading in this march, he's leading his instruments of justice. See, they're all following behind him. What we see now is here is the culmination of something that has been in the pipeline for the last 400 years. It's finally coming to fruition. Uh, God's patient wait has finally ended. The time is now up. The tipping point has been reached. And the Canaanites are now getting exactly what their sins deserve. They are getting God's justice. And so you can see that in the Old Testament's old view, there's actually nothing unjust about the conquest. Really, that, that is at the heart of, 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 of so many um, criticisms of the book of Joshua, that that is unfair, or God is wrong to do that. And yet we see from the Old Testament's point of view, there is nothing unjust about this at all. There is nothing unfair about this. Uh, this is right. This is God's righteous judgment against wickedness. Now, obviously, not everyone accepts the Bible's view, um, but what that does show us that the, the real issue, it's never the conquest itself. The real issue is always the character of God. That what we're seeing when we, when we read about the destruction of Jericho because of the wickedness of the people, we're seeing there the holiness of God. God is holy. That means he absolutely hates sin. He hates wickedness. And God is just. He must punish sin. He cannot just ignore it. He can't think that it doesn't matter. He must punish it. And so there we see a determined destruction. 400 years in the making. Uh, the second thing this passage teaches us, though, is uh, it's also a devoted destruction. Uh, devoted destruction. So this is in verses 17 to 21. And uh, in verses 17 to 21, the actual destruction of Jericho is recorded. And so, you know, the seventh time, they finally made it around the city for the seventh time on the seventh day. And Joshua tells the men to shout. They all shout. God causes the wall to collapse. The army charges in. They take the city. And it's an amazing victory. But surrounding the details of that victory... Uh, 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 more explanation about exactly what is to happen to Jericho. And uh, we see in verse 17, it says, <clears throat> in verse 17, the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Uh, verse uh, 19, uh, it says uh, that all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Uh, now, but what about the living things? Verse 21. Um, they devoted the city to the Lord 
and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Now obviously that's the verse that we struggle with and, uh, and often this verse is, is described as a um, genocide or an ethnic cleansing. And if we actually look at what it means, we can see that those modern terms don't, don't really apply to or don't fit what, with what's actually taking place. Uh, see, the idea here is that everything in Jericho is devoted to the Lord. See, that's, that's the key word there. It's, it's devoted to the Lord. The idea is that it's all set apart for a particular purpose that God has determined. And uh, verse 18, uh, which I skipped over there, it says that um, you know, the Israelites are to stay away from all the devoted things. Must not, you know, they can't go into the city and start filling their pockets with gold or, or um, if they see something that looks really nice, they can't take it. Because everything is devoted, it's set apart to the Lord for the particular purpose he has determined, which is destruction. And if the people were to take some of those things, it would be like aligning themselves with the devoted things, which would mean that they would bring destruction upon themselves. And uh, we'll see how that plays out in the next chapter. But again, there's a whole background of teaching in the Old Testament about this idea of being devoted to destruction. And I'm not going to look at all the verses, but a key passage is Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16, where we have the, the, the reason why it was devoted to destruction. And uh, we read this. It says, uh, In the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshipping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. So here we have the reasoning behind the devotion to destruction. Uh, and, it's, and what we can actually see is that on the other side of God um, punishing the Canaanites was God was setting up a holy nation. So in that land where he was um, judging all of those Canaanites, uh, that land was now to be holy to the Lord. It meant that every single person within the boundaries of that land were to be holy to the Lord. They were all to be faithful to God's covenant. And so as a result, there could not be any compromises on God's standards. There could be no uh, immorality. There could be no, uh, there could be no other religious practices. It's, it's very different to how things are today. You know, like Australia, um, you know, we can, we can be faithful to God in a land where there are all kinds of religions and all kinds of different practices. Uh, but in, in this, uh, this land that God was setting up, it was unique in that God was the king overall Every single person within that place had to be holy to the Lord. Which meant that for that to happen, there first needed to be a complete cleansing of that land. And uh, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, I was trying to think of an illustration. So, you know, say you were going to set up a food production plant in a facility where there had been a, um, you know, a, an outbreak of a toxic bacteria. Now, before you can go into any food production, 
you first need to have that place thoroughly cleansed. You know, if there's just one little trace of that toxic bacteria left, well, if you start the new production up, <clears throat> eventually it's all going to be overrun again. And that's the idea that's going on here. Uh, in the land of Canaan, there needed to be a cleansing of a particular kind of a bacteria, well, not a bacteria at all, of wickedness and rebellion. And with that in mind, you can see that terms like genocide and ethnic cleansing are completely irrelevant because those terms refer to the destruction of a people group based on their ethnicity. And that, that is actually wicked. That is evil. And that's not what's going on here because the destruction of Canaan had nothing to do with their race at all. It all had to do with their wickedness. That's, what, that's why God judged them. That's why he commanded their total destruction. Now, what do we do with all of this? You know, devoted to destruction, uh, very confronting. Um, however, if we do trace this theme out through the Bible and uh, trace it into the New Testament and, and see, you know, where, where does all this end up? Uh, what we actually see is that what God did in a sp specific place at a specific time uh, we actually see that that's actually a picture of what God has in store for the entire earth at the end of the age. Now, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you know, read the words of Jesus, uh, read the New Testament, read the book of Revelation, and we very quickly see that what happened to Jericho, what happened to the Canaanites, is a little picture of what God is going to do to the whole earth, but it's far worse because the destruction on the last day is an everlasting destruction. Now, it's eternal. And so, you know, we think, boy, if we have a problem with Jericho, whoa, what about Judgment Day? How scary is that? The entire earth. And so as we read uh, the destruction of Jericho, you know what that is? That's a wake-up call to all of us. That if any of us are hanging on to sin, if any of us are ignoring God's call to turn away, to repent of sin, and to turn back to him, if we're, if we're ignoring that, then we are in big trouble that's what this is saying to us today. If we're ignoring the holy God, eventually we too will be devoted to destruction. But it's an eternal destruction. This is, this is uncomfortable, isn't it? But here we're being confronted with the holiness and justice of God. So what escape is there? Well, that brings us to the last point. Okay, we've seen in Jericho a determined destruction. We've seen a devoted destruction, but where does this end? A deliverance from destruction. There's a deliverance. A deliverance from destruction. There's a way of escape. There was a way of escape even for the Canaanite. And uh, we see that with um, Rahab. So Rahab is first mentioned in verse 17, but she becomes the focus of 
verses 22 to 27. So that's the third section in this passage. Rahab was a Canaanite, true blue. Uh, she was, um, uh, as you know, she was a prostitute. And, um, and that was one of the things that, you know, God was against. That's why he judged uh, Canaan. Uh, however, Rahab and all of her family were delivered from the destruction. And the reason Rahab was delivered is because out of all of those wicked Canaanites, she was the only good person. Wrong. <laughs> That's not why she was delivered. She was just as wicked as the rest of them. So if you read um, verses 22 to 27, uh, you'll notice that Rahab is never mentioned without reference to the fact that she was a prostitute. Sometimes it doesn't say Rahab, it says just the prostitute. And uh, it's, it's reminding us that Rahab deserved to be destroyed with the rest of them, and yet she was delivered. Why? Why was she saved? And the answer is ultimately because someone else would eventually take her punishment in her place. Someone would be judged in her place. That's the only reason she was saved. Because someone else received her judgment on her behalf. And what we see in Rahab, though, in her salvation, is that there was an offer of salvation to the Canaanites, to the, these people who were under God's wrath. There was the offer of salvation. Uh, you know, all of the people of Canaan knew God was coming. Um, they had heard it even before the Israelites crossed the Jordan River. Remember how the spies went into the land and they, they went into Jericho? And Rahab said, you know, everyone is shaking in their boots because we've heard of the God of Israel, how he dried up the Red Sea. We've heard how he delivered the people out of Egypt. They'd heard of this God who saves people. They'd heard of this mighty God who judged, who judged the Egyptians. They'd heard, they'd heard the message. And so everyone knew this God is coming this mighty, holy God of justice. He's coming. They knew it. They were all shaking their boots, and yet, what happened? Only Rahab. Only Rahab and her family thought to themselves, do you know what? Maybe this God who is coming, who is right to judge us, maybe he will forgive us. Maybe he'll welcome us as one of his own. And so she, she put her faith in the God of Israel. And what happened? God did save her. God did deliver her. She was saved. And so when we think about the destruction of Jericho, we need to think about it like this. Those who were destroyed got what they deserved. They received God's justice. Those who were saved... Sorry, did I say that right? Those who were destroyed got what they deserved, but those who were saved got what they did not deserve. They received God's grace. And so this chapter, it actually takes us to the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is this, that God is just and he must punish sin. Right? But we also see that God is love. And he's a God who forgives sinners who repent 
and receive his offer of salvation. And uh, do you know the only way God can be both loving and just is in the cross of Christ. Because at the cross, his only son was punished in our place so that our sin could be done away with. It could be judged and we can be set free. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's revealed there in Jericho with Rahab. And so the offer of salvation that Rahab took up, that's the offer that's given today. And so the question is, have you taken that offer? Now, just one last thing with Rahab. Um, you know, her salvation. Remember we saw at the start that a determined destruction. God waited 400 years before he judged the um, Canaanites. And, uh, you know, we, we asked the question, why did God hold it back so long? When we see Rahab being saved, we, we now know the answer. All that time, he was holding it back for her. You know, so that she and her family could experience his grace. That's why he held it back. And um, I don't know, like, you know, I was thinking this week, I wonder what Rahab would have felt like the day that that dawned on her. That, you know, she, she was saved. You know, she came to experience God's grace and then she realised that was 400 years in the making. Well, actually, much longer than that. goes right back before the creation of the world. That God had chosen her to be his own, to forgive her sin, to welcome her into his kingdom. And uh, we're actually told in 2 Peter 3 that, you know, regarding judge, Judgment Day, God is patient toward you, not wanting anyone to perish but that all would come to repentance. And so that's, that's, why, that's the question from the, the Battle of Jericho. It really comes down to this. Have you repented? Have you turned away from your wickedness? And have you received the Saviour? Now is the time to do it. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so uh, thrilled that uh, you are this wonderful God, this God who is holy, this God who hates sin and, and will not let uh, sin go unpunished. And we praise you for that, Lord, because we know that if it wasn't for you, if it wasn't for your, uh, who you are and your holiness and justice, then sin would, would win in the end. But we know that you will not let that happen uh, because of who you are. And we thank you, Father, that we see uh, just how much you are committed to punishing sin when, when we look at Jesus on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because there we see that your commitment to, pay, to punish sin was so, so great that the only way you could forgive us was if something, if someone uh, took our punishment in our place. And so we thank you for your grace that you would forgive us through the work of Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that when we see uh, Rahab all those, those years ago, reaching out and finding you, we know that you were the one who had set your love upon her even before the creation of the world. Father, we pray uh, for each of us here tonight that we would be uh, in, in awe of, of your holiness and your justice and your mercy and your grace. Uh, we pray, Lord, that we would live um, in the fear of the Lord, that we wouldn't um, take sin as something trivial, that we would always uh, be shocked uh, when we uh, see uh, just how
how easily we give in to temptation and, and how we can just uh, treat these things as if they don't matter. Oh Lord, help us to, to realise uh, how much you hate sin and how much you have done to save us from it, uh, that we would pursue uh, a life of holiness out of thankfulness to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.